Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. A dog watch is an evening shift of early or late duty, or the people who undertake it. This dog watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place for us to go wherever curiosity takes us. What better way to celebrate the 50th episode of the On The Dog Watch podcast than to have a conversation with someone who has provided steadfast support and positive energy and has become the de facto patron saint of the podcast, James Cox. Many listeners will remember when James joined us for episode number 28 and told the story of his relationship with Paul Newman and how he was given Newman's Rolex Daytona watch. In our conversation today, we pick up where we left off and talk about how funds from the sale of the Paul Newman, Paul Newman, have been used in projects such as the preservation of the West Fjords in Iceland, the ecology of salmon in the Pacific Northwest, and the Kiss the Ground movie project. Listeners are encouraged to learn more at the Nell Newman Foundation and at myfriendjames.com. In addition, James and I also discuss the year I have spent with James's Black Dial Rolex Daytona and what can be learned when people connect through the sharing of a simple object like a watch. In the end, James gives us plenty to think about regarding how we dedicate ourselves to making contributions and positive change. With that, let's hear from James Cox. James, welcome back to the Dog Watch. Thank you. Great to be back. It's been uh, it's been a minute, as they say. Yeah. Nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been almost uh, almost a year. It was March, I think, um, last year, episode twenty eight. And first, I wanted to thank you for being the first um, repeat um, guest on the Dog Watch um, here, and also. It's episode 50. So this is a celebration for me and I think for the podcast, um, getting to 50 episodes and I can't think of a better way um, to celebrate than to spend some time with you. So so thanks for doing that. Well, I appreciate that. I think it's uh, an achievement for sure. Um, I've enjoyed um, listening and the different storytellers and people you've had on. It's been really fantastic. And oh, I think that's part of why I've been so patient um, for us to reconnect because I feel like I, I, I feel like I speak with you all the time, even though that's not true. I think that's the podcasts have that funny magic about them. Um, I'm like, Oh yeah, Mike, I just talked to him. Well, actually, no, I didn't. I just listened to him is what happened. <laughs> um, but you know, we have that podcast you and I did together was, uh, was really special and we left a few tethers, which is part of why we're here tonight, I guess. Right. Well, just to kind of um, recap a little bit for people who haven't listened to it or haven't listened to it in a while, it's episode 28. Um, and in you know, we met really for the first time on that episode. Um, we didn't know each other before that. I'd reached out and wanted to talk to you about, I think, the Newman watch and more importantly, your relationship with Paul Newman and how that watch had you know, sort of how you'd experienced it and how it, it had changed you, which then led to another watch, which we'll talk about, which is on my wrist right now that um, I I have had an extended on the wrist with 
um, too. So there's a lot to kind of uh, talk about, but maybe for people who are just coming new, maybe to the podcast or whatever, just kind of recapping a little bit about what your relationship is, what the Paul Newman watch is, what your relationship was with Paul Newman. Again, people should go back and listen to that episode if you can, but more importantly, I think, you know, you could just sort of say a little bit about, you know, how you came to have the the watch and who Paul Newman was to you. Yeah, happy to. And I've told the story many times, as you can imagine, and kind of depending on who the audience is, I can make it super brief and pique their interest. And when I do that, sometimes I think people look at me in disbelief <laughs> because if you tell the story very quickly, it doesn't seem possible. Like, oh yeah, I happen to have one of the most or the most famous watch in the world and I sold it for $17 million. Like, sure you did, kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not the most interesting way to explain it. What's really fun is when you meet somebody that has a watch on their wrist that you know, usually indicates they have some intention and understanding of the, the whole process. And when you mention that story to them, of course, it, it's hard to cut it short and the story goes on. But, um, but just as a slight recap, I think for people that don't know the story, um, I mean, the, the highlights are that I was fortunate enough to meet Paul Newman when I was, I met him when I was 18 years old, I was dating his daughter who I dated for about 10 years and this is back in the 80s. And he and I um, quickly became friends. And um, he, arguably one of the most important people I ever met in my life, who mentored me in ways that are more powerful today than even at the time. I think the lessons I learned and the experiences I had with him come back to me uh, in my adult years in a really strong way. And that's because he was a very profound personality. Um but not in like, as we mentioned, I think on the, the previous podcast we did, you know, Paul Newman, as large a figure as people assume he is and, and certainly was, the things that made him so impressive uh, to me, and I think the reason he was loved by so many and so successful were not things that were extraordinary. They were more things that were just basic kindness, dignity, uh, paying attention, respect, uh, and a lot of humility. And because of those things, he was able to see me, an 18-year-old uh, college student dating his daughter, and actually make space for me and take the time to appreciate who I was as this, you know, perhaps at the time, I would imagine, very temporary person in his life. I mean, you know, an 18-year-old dating his daughter, okay? Like, I don't know how many dads are listening to this saying, you know, is that guy going to stick around? Is he going to wreck, borrow my car and wreck it? I don't know. I mean, it's just like the fact that this guy um, gave me the attention he did and the fact that he was Paul Newman, who had a few things going on at the time, um, is just such a great statement about who he was. And um, and so we quickly developed a, a friendship that was um, – sweet and somewhat awkward when I think about it in retrospect. Um, sweet because he had a lot of patience for me and awkward because I was dating his daughter and um, I wasn't starstruck at the time. It was more just, you know, this is my girlfriend's dad. 
And that's not an easy situation, no matter how you slice it. And I think when I first started hanging out with them, I was actually living at their house in Connecticut. So I'm there with my girlfriend and her three other sisters and Joanne Woodward and Paul, we're all in the same house. And this was my first experience with a girlfriend when I didn't have to sneak in her bedroom window at night without waking up her parents. I mean, I'm invited to the house and I'm staying in her room and I'm going down in the kitchen in the morning and having breakfast with the whole family. It was like really foreign to me. And, you know, this was a progressive family and um, it was awesome. But uh, to, to kind of accelerate the story a little bit, um, when that, that, that first summer I spent uh, with the family in Connecticut, um, Paul Newman gave me his Rolex Daytona that was a gift to him from his wife, Joanne, when he started racing cars. And it was a Daytona. And on the back, she had inscribed drive carefully me. And he gave it to me that summer because Joanne had given him a replacement watch, which said drive slowly, Joanne. And so he had a new watch in his quiver and decided that he would give me the original. And um, it's remarkable on so many levels. I mean, especially when you realize what happened since that he gave me that watch, it's incredibly remarkable. But at the time it's also, uh, I mean, I had met him at that point. I think we I'd known him probably less than a year um, it was just a, a super generous act. And I wore that watch for, you know, 30 years, um, pretty much every day since. And at the time, it was a sentimental gift. Um, and I mean, this is 1984 or five, I forget the exact dates. But, um, you know, I knew Rolexes were important, uh, fancy things. But to me, it was more just like, wow, this is super cool. And Paul gave it to me. And I treasured that watch for years. And uh, so fast forward uh, in more recent time, in like 2016 or so, I find out this watch is actually extremely important to the entire watch community. And, um, you know, Paul Newman died in 2008. And right about after that, certain people in the watch industry were asking the question, what happened to his Daytona? Where is it? Who has it? And someone eventually tracked me down and had offered me, I think a million bucks for the watch at one point. And I said, no, thank you. I'm keeping it. And that same person a year later chimed in with maybe 2 million. And I'm like, nope, I'm keeping it. And then several years later, um, I ran into a, a good friend who was a watch collector who introduced me to uh, a rail box from, from Switzerland. And that's when I realized how important this timepiece really was to the world. And, and I thought to myself, geez, you know, we, we should do something fun with this watch. Um, there's a lot of people in the world that know about this watch. It's got this history. It had its own Wikipedia page. Um, and maybe I felt a little bit of like, this could be really fun to take this watch and show it to the world and um, bring it out of hiding. And, um, and that's what I did. And we marketed the watch. We took it all around literally to Dubai and Japan and all these places and put it on display for people to come look at, look at it and talk about it. And then eventually we decided to auction it off. Um, and it set a world record. We sold the watch for $17.8 million in 2017 and set a record 
um, and changed. I think we've had a huge influence on the uh, secondary watch market from that sale. I mean, I know we have. Um, I think anybody trying to buy a Rolex in the last year or two is probably frustrated with me for that reason. Uh, and if you already have one, you might be thanking me. Um, and I had a hell of a time getting a replacement. I'll tell you, that's another story. Um, and then the beautiful thing too, I mean, there's so many details to the story. It's really, I can, I mean, I, I have talked about it for hours, um, but to try and bookend it a little bit, just for the people that have heard the story already in your audience. Um, I mean, the, the, one of the coolest things is that realizing that this watch I had was a gift to me, but it was also um, so much bigger than that. And um, when I realized how important the watch is and how much kind of power, I mean, it sounds kind of hippie, but it's like it just this watch had a lot of embedded energy and power. And that's why it could command a sale like that of $17 million, that the responsible thing to do was to take that and, and play it forward. And I've been working with Nell Newman, um, the same girl I dated uh, during that 10 year stint, uh, Paul's daughter. We're still extremely close. In fact, she's just texted me like 10 minutes ago um, asking me a car question or something. She's actually driving by the hood river and it's snowing and she's got summer tires. And so obviously I still have a role in her life and she and mine and together we are, um, giving the money away through uh, the Nell Newman Foundation, which is a foundation. It's her foundation. And um, with our, our third friend, Bob Scowcroft, the three of us um, as directors have had just an amazing time finding super cool uh, nonprofits that need funding and, um, and putting this, basically this watch energy into these various initiatives and watching them bloom. And it's been a lot of work, but extremely rewarding. Um, so that's kind of a quick, quick version of the story. Um, kid gets a cool watch, kid sells a cool watch, sets a world record and is, is giving the money away and having a cool time. And along the way, I meet you, um, Yeah, some random guy from Minnesota emails you and says, hey, can you talk about this? And and you did. And I think one of the things that really came across to me in that story was, at least one of the things, was the nature of an object like this watch. Because for you, for most of the time you had it, it was just this nice watch, right? But you wore it for everything. And it was an object that, that wasn't bound by the Rolex name or by the number of however much it's worth at a particular time um, that you could just experience it and have its association with that person. And we also, I really sort of appreciate how much we were able to talk about Paul and that, and that was kind of one of the um, real areas of focus for the last conversation we had is who, who he was and what he meant to you. And I, I found that really moving actually um, because there's a lot to be learned from him. And since then, since our conversation, just I haven't mentioned this to you since we just talked briefly before we started recording, but like I've definitely done a lot more reading and listening about, you know, Paul's life and what he meant to people and how he, you know, how he existed in the world. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be learned, um, especially about, well, partly about objects, but also about how you live your life, how you treat 
people and how you might, as you say, pay things forward. And I think we've got a lot, um, a lot of that to be doing. So that's kind of where I wanted to start in a way is we didn't get last time to this question a little bit about, so what are those things? So you, you got this massive sum of money, right? In exchange for this watch, which now I understand is in some undisclosed location with someone nobody knows, I think, right? I don't believe you know who has it. Is that right? That's correct. I do not. Yeah. So now the object is somewhere else, right? Has different meaning to different people. It lives in sort of the memory. But now that the sum of the value and the spirit or however you want to think of it has been transferred to these to these funds that you're using for projects. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about what that looks like. I've seen on your website, some of the projects and I have questions about them, but how would you describe how you select those projects, how you decided how to use the money? Like, what are you using it for? What's the objective and how does that relate to Paul? Well, most of the initiatives are related to climate environment, um, primarily because that's been a passion that that Nell, his daughter, and I have shared. And many of the conversations we had with Paul were related to that. So imagine, you know, Nell and I are dating, we're, you know, we're in our early 20s, we're having dinner with Paul. At that time, Paul has the food company Newman's Own, and he's taking all the profits and giving them to charitable things. And one of his big initiatives was uh, these camps called the hole in the wall gang camps. And they were a place where kids with, you know, mostly terminal illnesses or extremely difficult medical issues that otherwise would not be able to go have say a camp experience because they're stuck in hospitals hooked up to machines. So we built these camps that had, they were basically hospitals but when you looked at them, they just looked like summer camp. They were disguised hospitals. And he built one, the first one in Connecticut. And the idea was that these kids would come to this camp for a week and they'd have full medical staff there. I mean, the, the swimming pools were had like the most advanced filter systems of any pool in the world so that these kids wouldn't have exposure to debarriates, you know, no chlorine, that sort of thing. And the other thing that was cool about those camps is that for a given week, the kids that would come to those camps typically had similar health issues. So for example, if you're a kid with some backpack filtering your blood, this rare thing, like you rarely meet other kids with that same backpack. Yeah. And these camps would be like, Oh, there'd be 20 kids there, all whom going through the same experience. And then, you know, could also have a camp experience and it was remarkable and powerful. And, you know, bravo for that effort. But what Nell and I would do is challenge Paul and say, well, Paul, you know, we think that a lot of the stresses in the food system are maybe causing some of these problems. I mean, we don't know, but at the time we were both in in school studying different science and ecology, and we were watching um, and learning a lot about pesticides in the environment and how they stress out biological systems. And it's pretty easy to draw the line between these communities that have a lot of you know, toxic agricultural chemicals, and then some of the health effects in those cities and those communities. So Nell and I were saying, well, Paul, look, you're making products, which are fine. You're making spaghetti sauce and salad dressing, and the money's going to help these kids, which is great. But wouldn't it be even better if we could make organic food, 
that is also helping the environment and not putting as much environmental stress on it with chemicals. And let's do both things. Um, and he, at the time, re- agreed reluctantly and said, okay. Um, and then uh, Nell started uh, Newman's Own Organics, which was a subdivision of Newman's Own. And it went out and created organic snack foods in the beginning and really was a pivotal company in helping the organic food industry get started. I mean, anybody listening who knows the history of organic food in the country and the advent of Whole Foods and all these things, Newman's Own Organics was a big player in that. So the point being, many of the topics that we would talk to Paul about where, you know, us as kind of hippie environmental people trying to get him to put some of his energy and attention towards those issues. Cause he was very political at the time and he was very humanitarian oriented, but he wasn't necessarily like an environmentalist. I mean, Joanne was more than, than Paul, but he was practical and, and he'd listen to us. Um, I'm sure we were a complete pain in the ass. He's like, Oh no, I got to go to dinner <laughs> with Nell and James. And they're going to like try and tell me my salad dressing isn't organic. And, and, but, but to his credit, I mean, he listened to us and we were like, you know what, you can make your salad dressing organic and you can solve, you can, you know, help the farmers growing the olives and you can give the money to the kids. We can, it can be win-win. Um, so in typical Paul fashion, I mean, he simply challenged Nell and said, well, why don't you go start a company and you go do that and I'll help you. And he gave her the first loan and that company was hugely successful. I mean, it's been like 25 years since it was started. Um, and it just cranked to the point where I think it, it like, in terms of profits, was competing with the parent company at one point. Um, and so I think because of that, and because that's kind of the interest Nell and I had, we thought, you know, well, let's take this and let's fund kind of interesting projects um, that are in that realm. and. And I personally feel that, you know, climate issues are, you know, one of the most, if not the most pressing issue facing humanity. And it's, um, I really want to help the underdogs and the smarter little initiatives um, with that effort, because some of them, it's hard to get the funding. So that's kind of our niche. I mean, I think like you need to pick a niche and that's our niche. Um, So that's, that's where the funds go. And it's remarkable some of the small things we funded that have really done well. I mean, I must admit, you know, we're really good at finding people that have good ideas and, and just need a little nudge. And we're also good at um, pulling other monies together from other bigger resources. So you have a group like, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates. I mean, they have a massive resources, but they're also not very nimble because it's such a big entity. And they might be able to throw hundreds of millions at a, a malaria issue. But they're not going to find an author who's studying a small thing and going to write a book and publish, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, some issue about oil wells or something like that. They just they're just not going to be able to do that. And that's where where our strength is. Wow. So, you know, it seems like there's no question that what you do and what you did with the watch really follows Paul's lead. And I think. I agree with you completely, one, that climate and climate change is really front and center, in my opinion, the most important, you know, thing we can focus on, not to the exclusion of some other things, obviously, but uh, it's it's huge. And using the 
sort of template and initiative that Paul's kind of life helps teach us. What are some of the like best stories or best experiences, like a, a few things so people can understand what the Nell Newman Foundation, what you have done and what it looks like to do that? You know, some people roll their eyes at like, oh, you're an you know, environmentalist and all the regulation. And, you know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people uh, in the oil and, from the oil and gas business or uh, recently. Uh, I think I kind of throw myself into the fire a lot because I think it's really important to hear other people's perspective. So, you know, I sat in it with this couple at a cafe the other day and um, just coincidentally, I heard them say something. I heard Paul Newman's name. And I looked over at this couple. And I'm like, do you guys just say Paul Newman? <laughs> and they happened to be looking at something on the, on the internet. And there was some old photos of Paul. So I just quickly interrupted them and said, Oh, well, I knew Paul and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they were, uh, they were from Texas. Um, and they, they had something with them that they were clearly Trump supporters. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be fun. We're like, you know, we're coming from really different sides of this, uh, story here, but let's, let's chat. So I immediately like brought up some of the stuff I was doing. And, um, and I just remember this thing that like I, I listened to on Bill Maher the other day. Well, Bill Maher was like, you know, you can, you can not like Trump, but you can't dislike the people who like Trump. And you have to realize like, we're all people, we're all probably pretty damn close on our goals. And if we just sit there and hate everybody, we're never going to get anything done. And I feel like the climate issue is a button for a lot of people a lot of a lot of environmental stuff that we do um that we fund are, are kind of buttons and the trick here seems to be to find a way to disarm everybody and listen to each other and find the common ground and i think that is kind of the backdrop of what we're doing uh for most of the granting uh through the Nell newman foundation i mean sure we have our bias about what we think is right. Like I personally think that, you know, pesticides and and the agricultural system in this country is way too far off in one direction. And we have to bring it back for, to take care of our soil, to take care of our, our water and to not just kill all the bees, which are important. But if we just approach it radically like that, we're not going to, meet everybody in the middle and find solutions. And that's really what we need. And with this couple I met in this cafe, as an example, you know, we very quickly realized that there are certain things we're just never going to agree on, but there was a lot of things we could agree on. And it was an, a really great conversation. And, and I ended up explaining to them uh, some of the initiatives that I've been funding and encouraging them to go, uh, for example, to go watch this movie um, called Kiss the Ground. And I can't remember if we spoke about this on the last podcast. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, okay, so there's a movie called Kiss the Ground that um, some of the funding, a very small amount, went to help produce this movie. And Woody Harrelson narrates it, and it's it's a, a really nice movie. And it discusses very optimistically how changing the way we deal with soil and farming can be an incredible carbon pull and pull tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, and not only that, it's just 
we can produce better food. And the movie is really well done. And I think over like 20 million people saw it. And so it was very effective. And the whole point of the movie is, is just a simple message that soil is alive, full of microorganisms. Uh, we can take better care of it. And it has incredible benefits. That's really it. And I can't tell you how many people I've met who didn't know some of those simple things about soil, including farmers. <laughs> um, because farmers have grown up doing things a certain way. And, you know, and in the past, many of us in the environmental world might have come in kind of heavy handed to try and make change. And I don't think that's effective. And I think what we're learning as a foundation and um, what I'm learning as, you know, if you call me an activist or whatnot, is that, you know, if I can have real conversations and meet people where they are, there's so much more in common than you would imagine. And you can put aside the differences, which usually aren't that important, and get to work and solve real problems. This movie is a beautiful example of that. I mean, if you watch it, you know, it's a documentary and you might go, okay, this is, you know, another hippie film about environmental problems, but it's really not. It's, it's, it's much deeper than that. And um, there's been initiatives related to the film, sub films that have gone out that are directed strictly at farmers. And we've worked with John Deere tractor company to actually make machinery that is no till. And again, this is, you can't just sit there and say, save the whales and don't do whatever you're doing because whales are great. You have to kind of back up and go, well, let's have a conversation about the real story and the real value. Um, so I'm kind of drifting here, but I think the, the, the point is that I've been learning that when we sit around a table with people, especially those who we don't agree with, and if we can find some space to look for the common interests at the underlying, they're almost always there. And they're the important things anyway. And we can agree on that. You can then work towards a solution so much faster. And I think the things that I'm most proud of that we did with the foundation, I mean, the movies won, and I did not do much with the movie. I simply helped um, with some financing and maybe a tiny bit of marketing. Um, the people that did it were brilliant. Um, so I don't take credit for that. But the work I did in Iceland, I think I'm most proud of because it was, you know, an example of that, of coming into an area. So there was an area in Western Iceland that was subject to, there was going to be three different dams built for power plants to, fill, to, to, to feed a mining operation. And we went in there and said, look, let's take a pause here. We may, this may not be the best use of resources. And, um, and it's, it helped that it was in Iceland where people were willing to sit down with us and, and discuss things. Um, you know, very educated population, um, not a population that was very suspicious of outside influences, which is not true of say of Africa, different places there where that have been, they've had so many people come in and take advantage of, of resources there that, um, you know, unlike Africa, the Iceland was much more open to conversation, but we were all able to sit around a table and basically let everybody discuss what was most important and peel away, you know, the bullshit politics and 
the conspiracy and go, at the end of the day, what do you want? What do you really need? You know, you want your family to be happy. You want your kids to be fed. You want jobs. You want your rivers to flow clean, you know. And then let's look at this project through that lens and see if it makes sense. And when there are interests at the table who are strictly there for for shorter term profit, um, they kind of bubble to the surface and are seen for what they are. And there's no name calling and you don't really have to do much. Those things become obvious when you take the noise out. And um, so I think like, I mean, this is kind of a, a tangent here in a way, but in a way it does tie back to, to Paul Newman in the sense that I think he was really good at this. And so Paul Newman was known to be, you know, very liberal. Um, and maybe he had a hall pass because he could walk into a room full of very conservative people and they'd be like, well, geez, Paul Newman just walked in. You know, I think everybody would give him a hall pass. Yeah. <laughs> but even in those situations, he, you know, he would disarm the room. Yeah. And, um, and I was with him, um, when, you know, so back in the day, everybody was like, oh, anti-nuke and, and Joanne Woodward was very anti-nuke. And I think I'm sure I had a no nuke bumper sticker on my VW at one point, <laughs> but like, you know, and then I remember Paul was like, I think we need nuclear power. And this is back in the, um, this must've been the, the 80, uh, the early nineties. And we're like, no, you're kidding me. Nuclear power, it's awful. And But, you know, Paul was like, he was, again, he was ahead of the curve that way. He was like listening to everybody. And he was listening to some very smart people who were like, look, you know, this, the, 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 the physics is completely sound. Maybe the way we built these things and the way we handled them was not correct, but you can't knock the science. And let's go revisit this as a solution for clean power. And he was right. Yeah. And at the time, I remember going and finding like an Economist article, like even the Economist says nuclear power is like not economical and blah, blah, blah. And Paul read that article I gave him and said, you know what? Um, They're looking at the current technology and it doesn't pencil out economically. That's true. But that doesn't mean we should abandon the science. Right. And again, that's a good example of like Paul could walk in a room full of people in the energy sector (laughs) who are pro-nuke. And learn something from them and disarm them. And again, I think, I mean, it's kind of a stretch to say I'm like using his manifesto. Um, But I think both Nell and I would agree that, you know, there's a lot of lessons that we learned in a very subtle way from him that we're employing now that are making us much more effective at, at getting stuff done. Yeah. And it seems like you're, you have a real range of projects. You mentioned the, I guess it's the reimagining the West Fjords um, project. There's a, a lot of other ones. And I'm wondering, just for people who might be more interested and want to go learn more about what you're doing, and then also, you know, hopefully some people might want to support it, either in with energy funds, et cetera. How, how should people get more information about what you're doing with Nell Newman Foundation. I know on your website, there's a, a lot of good information. Where would you suggest people go if they want to learn more about what you're talking about as far as your activities? Well, the, the Nell Newman Foundation.org or myfriendjames.com are, are two of our websites, which they're not 
awesome websites and they're not up to speed on, on many of our projects. I think we're so busy. We don't update them. And there are times where I look at the website, like, why am I doing this? It's like, uh, is this, this a vanity project? Um, you know, if I'm, I'm talking about how great Paul was for being humble, it's like, I don't want to blow my horn too loudly, but you know, some of the times we were able to focus and, and amplify the message of a particular project. And it really does help bring more yeah. funding and more awareness. So there's certainly that it's basic marketing. Um, so if folks are interested, they can check those sources out. Um, and that might be a, a start. And, um, you know, we're, we're still tiny. We're like, it's such a tiny little blip. Um, and when you look at other foundations that have huge budgets, um, you know, that are, some of them making amazing impact, we feel like really insignificant until we see some project that's amazing and then go, wow, look at that. We did that. Like just, and maybe we can put some, some links in the show notes. Yep. Um, for example, somebody sent me this PDF on salmon fisheries in the Pacific Northwest. And it was one of the most elegant presentations I've seen. I mean, the video in it, the photography, and the story writing was fantastic. And I learned a ton about salmon and the value of these industries and the challenges. And when I got done, I sent it to Nell and Bob Scowcroft, our, my two board members at the foundation. And then Bob emailed me back and goes, oh, we funded this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. I mean, not, not directly, but we had funded the author yeah. and helped her do some work, which ultimately led to this piece. Um, and that's happened a few times where you see something that we're super proud of. And then we look back and go, wow, we helped get that off the ground. Um, and that's super cool and super rewarding. Um, and, and this particular salmon piece, I think we should put in the show notes because it's, it's one of these issues that again, it's like, it affects all of us. I mean, the salmon in the Pacific Northwest, especially, but it's such an interesting, uh, project in history. Um, I mean, there's all these connections going on with salmon and, you know, if you're just an economist, you can, you can look at the the economic impact they have, the salmon runs have, and it dwarfs the projects that are proposed that might negatively impact those salmon runs. And yet that's not typically how we measure things. So for example, you know, if you want the, the pebble mine in Alaska has been very controversial for years. And, and I think mining, you know, mining is essential for this complex world, but there are certainly choices we need to make about where we're going to do the mining and, you know, this mine in Alaska, the potential for disrupting these incredible ecosystems is massive. But we as environmentalists and ecologists have not been great at quantifying some of these systems to the point where we can challenge the economic forces. But we're getting better. And if you look at how valuable salmon are, and just in terms of straight economy, it's billions of dollars, not to mention you know, the, the, the tribes and the other side of, of it, that's not quantifiable. Um, and anybody who doubts that, I mean, the, 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 the ecological value, it's like, 
if, if has anybody seen the redwood forests in the Pacific Northwest and those massive redwood trees? And they're one of the most amazing things on the planet. And you ask yourself, well, how did they get so big? And like one of the answers is they grew off of salmon. I mean, salmon have been migrating up these streams, bringing huge amounts of biomass way inland. And then the bears eat them and then the bears poop them out and or the salmon die. And that's an incredible amount of biomass that arguably has fed those trees that let them grow as big as they grew. I mean, what else is, what other explanation is there right now? I mean, there might be another one, but I mean, that's one of the main inputs that made those trees so fantastic. And if you don't connect those dots, um, you don't realize that, wow, the salmon have a bigger impact on our global ecosystem than just, um, a couple of fishermen catching them in Vancouver Bay. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, well, uh, that's linked on your, just a cute on, story. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And I would say there's nothing wrong with being proud of stuff. I think what, what you've done and what you guys are doing is, yeah, is incredible I mean, and it's worth people recognizing and going and checking it out. Again, the, my friend James, um, dot com website, the Nell Newman foundation, it's, it's there both to learn about, I think to be inspired by. And again, I think there's nothing wrong to about by looking at something like, wow, James is doing that. What about like, how can I help? How can I do something? There's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's part of what Paul did too, right? People looked to him and said, oh, well, he's, he's leading in that way. And there's, there's, that's a, that's an important part of how we exist. So I suggest people check those things out. Also, I think, you know, people, if they're inclined can, can chip in. Right. I mean, there's no, there's no reason yeah. they can't. Yeah. And it's amazing so. what you can do. I mean, you figure out your jam. If you're into dogs, you can, there's something that you can do in that area. If you're yep. into, I mean, just like, it's just about getting involved and, um, you know, and, and I've been amazed. I mean, the, the thing in Iceland is just insane. Like if I've done nothing else on this planet, it's, we helped everybody involved, take a good look at, what potential futures there could be. And, you know, the, the people in power chose what I believe was a better direction for that area, which is to preserve it. And uh, we hope it's eventually going to be a national park. And it turned out it was the largest open space left in Europe. And, wow. you know, it's, it's easy for me to look at and go, wow, we just saved lots of species of animals and lots of open space. And, you know, as an ecologist, it's an enormous win. Yeah. But even through a different lens of just the people of Iceland not having development that really wasn't necessary other than for a very small financial gain for a very small group of people. Um, and all we did was help everybody look at this situation from a different side. We didn't come in heavy handed. We didn't come in telling anybody what to do. We just went, can we help you take a different look? And can we all calm down and look at this? What do we want this land to be like in 50 and 100 years? And through that lens, we made a very different decision than the one at hand, which was, oh, let's build a dam and make power. And then we can have a factory and 
all these things that we learned in the end weren't really necessary. Yeah. Um, and so again, I think like that alone, if I did nothing else in my life, helping preserve that I think is usually impactful and I'm super proud of it. Um, but it wasn't, like I said, it was just about having good conversation. And I think anybody listening, whatever your passion is, you can go, it's so easy if you just put your shoulder into it to go make a change that you'll be proud of. And, um, that, yeah, that's that. I mean, I'll just be quiet for a second. (laughs) I get excited about that one in particular. Absolutely. And I think that's a great sort of icon of what this conversation has been about largely is, is how to do that. And it's also funny in a way that a lot of it, when we you sort of taste it back, it was about a relationship, right? You're, I think, would consider Paul a mentor and, and friend, um, giving you a watch that, strangely enough, sat on your wrist for a long time, and then turned into something that could make some of those things happen. And it's not just by accident, right? It's about choices, too. About choices to to use it and to use those funds and to use your energies, which are doing a lot of travel now and, and putting a lot of... Um, putting a lot into this. Um, and those are about choices. And I think that's really important to recognize. I think Paul was certainly about that. Um, certainly about that too. So, and, and the funny thing too, is that kind of to pivot a little bit back to the watch angle, like, you know, certainly a lot of the funds or some of the funds, I don't know exactly how it's structured, but there was a significant amount of money that was put in from the sale of this watch. Right. And, and led led to um, you being able to do some of these things because you were able to sell this watch that um, Paul had given to you um, and use the funds for that. So when we were talking about it last time, (laughs) there was a sort of funny moment. And if people go back to the podcast, which now I've relayed to a lot of people in my own life, because um, it kind of affected my my last year or so, um, where we were talking about Rolex watches and kind of the whole question of this Rolex that you wore on your wrist that you just had and you were doing carpentry and all the other stuff. And then it was an $18 million watch. And I, I said something like, hey, that's amazing. What did you replace it with? Because I can imagine that if you had this beautiful watch on your wrist and it'd be hard to let it go because I've never had one on my wrist. Then James chimes in <laughs> and says, well what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you this watch that I have that was one of the, you know, watches that I've gotten since that's a a Rolex Daytona and you're going to try it out for a while. And I was, you know, just all with all honesty, like I was a little blown away. Like, like really, you're going to like, it's for those listening who haven't followed watches. It's, it's quite a valuable um, object. Um, and it's also an object that you can't buy, really, unless you have a Rolex, you've bought a lot of Rolexes and you have a, a, a authorized dealer on sort of speed dial. Um, and that's what happened. You send it to me and, and then I've had this experience of borrowing this object, this watch, and it's been it's been fantastic. And I, I know, um, you know, we... We wanted to talk a little bit about about what that was about, and I, I just you know I think first of all, I think when I experienced that, it's made me think a lot about what it takes to do that, what that meant for you to send that off to me, someone who 
you don't really know. I mean, I feel like I have enough <laughs> enough tentacles in the the settled world that I, you know, at least a reasonable bet, right? But we're not like close friends or whatever and and you just let me borrow it and experience it so I could have that experience and I think feel like that's also just been a really um really important lesson for me that that actually could happen, right? Like it's an object. It's something that has this, um, and now I feel like has a lot of meaning, um, that I attribute to this experience and having had it and, and what it means to me. It's now it's like the James Cox Daytona, right? For me and my family, right? Because that's, that's kind of what it means. So, so anyway, I thought, you know, it'd be fun to talk a little bit about that. And I know you were kind of wondering how it went. Yeah, I think that's fun. And when I tell people um, who ask me what happened to my black dial Daytona, um, I said, oh, I sent it to this guy, Michael, <laughs> and uh, he's in Minnesota or somewhere in the Midwest. Like, what? Yeah. I was like, and he's your friend? I'm like, well, I've never met him, but we did a podcast and he seems cool and he's never had a Rolex and he should, you know, I just wanted to check it out. Yeah. And people are like, they thought that was totally crazy. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, if, if Michael reads my obituary in the paper, because I crashed an airplane or something, he can like, I guess he's got a Daytona for the rest of his life. <laughs> but he really knows. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a terrible yeah. thought. Well, gla- I'm, I'm glad like, that didn't know, happen. It, yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's still, there's still time. Although now that we've mentioned it on the podcast, people know you have my watch. So you're going to be my, my estate that doesn't exist will come after you. Um, but it's just kind of fun because, um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Paul would do the same thing. And I feel so fortunate to have had this experience. It's really fun to share. And, and here we are like a year later. And I mean, I, you've had a good time with it, I yeah. assume. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because like, at first it was, you know, we're like, you were like, oh yeah, you know, a couple of months, whenever, you know, in the summer and you know, you were traveling and it was like, no, let's wait. It's not a good place to send it or whatever. And it just kind of, we were then trying to find a time to do the podcast and it's just sort of morphed into almost a year. Um, and I was looking back, I kept a notebook, <laughs> but you know, I'm such a nerd about notebooks. I, you know, wrote stuff down, right. And I sort of written down stuff about like, you know, the entries of when we talked last time and then when it was when you were planning to send it and i was just like writing about like wow is he really gonna send this is he just gonna fedex this watch to me you know and um it was fun to kind of look back at those things and think about the moments and i you know one of the things that i really feel like i learned from that experience and was really meaningful was um that since it's an object a watch right that i'm never going to buy or sell right? It, it, in some ways, I think, repeats a little bit of the experience that you had with Paul and sort of ha- using his watch, if I can call it that, right? Because you, you haven't kept it, um, is it kind of helped me, like, understand one, watches, right? Like, what a beautiful watch is like, because I could evaluate it on its own terms, right? I didn't, once you spend a lot of money, um, there's so much other stuff involved. Or if you feel like, oh my gosh, I should sell this thing or whatever, there's just so much else that you're thinking about rather than like, do I really enjoy this object? Do I enjoy this watch? And um, at first, it's funny to look back at my notes and what, 
definitely at first I was worried. Like, I was like, wow, I've got to like cover it up with, <laughs> you know, like my, my cough and super careful with it, which I actually, I, you know, I, that sort of lasted the whole time to be quite frank, but, um, you not, not the same kind of like worry about like, oh my gosh, am I going to get a little scratch on the band or something like it has to stay pristine, right? Like at first there's an anxiety that I think is understandable. Um, but after that, it just, it was like, well, it's, you know, that's what James did. You know, he, he wore this thing. That's what it was supposed to be, you know, for. Um, and as I did that, I really started to obviously, well, maybe not obviously, like when, when you told me you were going to send it, right. I was like, well, that's going to be really cool no matter what, right. Whether I like the watch or not, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a specific model of watch. I thought it was going to be a lot bigger to be honest with you. Like I felt like in my mind, when you want know, to talk about it, Daytona or whatever, you, you kind of think of this bigger thing because of all the people talk about it and all the lore and stuff. It's actually quite a, it's not modest, but it's not a huge watch, right? It's very comfortable to wear. It's also, I know it's a black dial and I'm curious about this for you. Um, <clears throat> I know you have a blue dial as well. Um, I was surprised at the Daytona markings, right? Where on the white dial, it sticks out, right? You can really see the Daytona. On the black dial, you don't, it's very subtle. Um, and I'm curious, like, is that something that in in sort of going from a white dial to a black dial or different colors, how, do, what's, what's your preference there? What was your experience about sort of that aspect of the dial color and sort of the, the presentation of the watch and wearing it? Well, I think initially I wanted a white dial because it was closer to what I had, even though mine had so patinaed over the years, it's hardly white. Um, but I thought the white would have been closer. And I ended up with the black because that's all I could get. And by no means is it, it's like, wah, I've got a black Daytona. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it wasn't a tragedy. Um and I also, as you mentioned, have the blue dial white gold, which I was fortunate enough to get uh, from a dealer in Vegas that took pity on me when I couldn't find a watch. And this was also not a watch that I would have given the choice of all the options had sought out because it, the, the, the white gold is very heavy and the blue is is beautiful but it looked a little too blingy for me i i've since gotten used to it um but compared to my original daytona this was quite a, a statement and it's also you know the retail on it is is quite high and i felt uncomfortable wearing a watch whose retail price is about forty thousand dollars yeah uh, compared to the regular steel daytonas which are more around ten thousand which is also a lot of money um but this was magnitudes more. Um, the blue dial is interesting. In certain light, it's quite stunning. But like the black dial, it is also kind of subtle in terms of its Daytona-ness. So the white one seems to be the most recognizable. Um, and both the black and the blue seem more subtle. And in a way, that's also kind of nice. Um so they all have their, their place and, you know, people seem to choose their favorites. Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, so you've, you've been forced <laughs> to deal with the black dial during this year. I know, and, boy, that's been a real um, force. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you've, I'm glad you've leaned into it. And you make some interesting points too about, I mean, I wonder, because you say you're, you're, it's, it's on loan to you. So you didn't have to buy it. Um, there's anxiety that you've hopefully gotten over yeah. about, you know, the, the, the liability of it because I didn't put any strings on it. I'm like, you know, this is obviously I'm taking a chance, but it's like, whatever, we need to have fun. Um, but sometimes when we covet things too much, we, we blow it, you know, whether it's a relationship with a person, whether it's a car, um, you know, we kind of miss the joy of the thing. And, you know, I grew up without much stuff. And I think I, when I could finally save up and buy something, whether it was a tent or a backpack or eventually a car, I mean, I think I spent so much time taking care of the damn thing. I don't think I enjoyed it that much. And the Daytona that Paul gave me, I mean, I look at, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, I wore it every day and I have, you know, I was in construction for years and wore it and it just, you know, it's, it's, it's a great object designed well and it, it managed to, to, to handle all that. And not everything can, I mean, you buy cheap stuff, it just can't endure, but there's something about like, you know, the economics of quality. Like when you have an object that's built beautifully, the design is good and it can really do its job, then just let it, let it do its job. And if it wears out and breaks, you can usually fix it. And um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there and learn about, but, you know, I wanted you to have an experience based on our, you know, at that point was our brief new friendship and it just seemed like the right thing to do. And you've enjoyed it. And um, luckily for me, I've suffered wearing the blue dial through this, time you've had my black dial and I've, yeah. I've been just fine um <laughs> i'm glad it hasn't also been. since i mean i mentioned <laughs> no but we talked a little bit too before the podcast started just getting touchy base on our personal lives a little bit and i'd mentioned to you that i'd like sold all my houses and done i'm like basically homeless right now and i got rid of all my stuff and that's been kind of an interesting exercise i'm just like getting rid of everything i mean i still have my watch which i still keep track of but it's kind of nice to kind of get rid of everything and then just bring back the things that are important and make it very deliberate. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're going to have shoes, make sure they're amazing and they make you feel good. And um, you only need a few pair. And especially if you're traveling, you really can't have more than a few pair. And I think your experience with the watch may be in this. It's like, okay, you didn't buy it. So you're not like having to, explain to your family why you're not going on a summer vacation because you blew the money on a watch. You're not That's having right. to like have anxiety over like whether it's time to sell the damn thing. You just get to enjoy it. Yep. And to the degree we can do that with the things in our lives, I think it just makes everything better. And if we can't do that, we should question what we're doing. I mean, if you have a car that you're so obsessed with, you don't let your girlfriend's dog get in it, you know, maybe you should get rid of the car and not the girlfriend. <laughs> um, that's a personal story for me, by the way, just because I definitely <laughs> got rid of girlfriends with terrible, terrible dogs. <laughs> I, I'd i like to ask you about that sometime, but yeah, maybe off the air. I should have left the dogs in my car. But yeah, I just mentioned that since you're a dog person. Yeah. I know you're a car <laughs> person too. Yes. <Yeah>, so. 
Well, it just, it remi- yeah, I mean, this is like, it reminds me like another Nell Newman story. Like Nell was an amazing cook, still is. And anybody who's lived with a good cook does a lot of dishes. And I used to resent the dishes until she and I broke up. And then I was really not eating great food. I'm like, oh man, I would love to do some dishes right now. And I think the same is true of the girlfriends that I like, their dogs destroyed my car. And I was like, you know, this isn't working, babe. And then, like, you know, maybe I got the, I focused on the wrong thing. And um, yeah, I recently looked at my Porsche seat and there was like glitter all over it and glitter. Anybody that knows like glitter, it gets in stuff and just, you can't get rid of it. Yeah. So I have like, my Porsche seat is permanently damaged by glitter. Glitter. And I'm like, hmm. yeah. From but the what? reason is because, well, from a girlfriend who was dressed like an angel going to something and a glitter on her. Ah. And now there's glitter in my seat. It's like, Actually, everybody should be lucky enough to have glitter yeah. stuck in their Porsche seats because this was a great person going into a costume party looking great. And like, you know, four years ago, I would have been upset with the glitter. Now I look at it and smile and go, well, that was lucky. I'm so lucky to have glitter in my yeah. car. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to like just be chill about things. And that's exactly why you're wearing my Daytona for yeah. that reason because yeah. – you've had an experience for a year um, that was important to you. And especially in your position of having, uh, you know, an audience um, that you can share that with and inspire people. I mean, that's part of the fun also. Yeah. I, I think one of the things you're talking about, and I think a lesson for me that I've sort of learned more in my life is that like you're saying, it's really easy with the number of objects that we have in this world, right? We certainly have many more than we actually need. But it, it was really interesting because this watch showed up as an object, right? I didn't like choose, well, I want the ceramic bezel or I want the steel bezel or I want the white dial or whatever. You know, it, it was just the watch, right? So I could appreciate it for what it was. And I wasn't questioning, I wasn't asking the sort of all the questions about all the choices and that, that I could have made that I was just focused on what it is. Then it can take the meaning of the experience and part of the experience is wearing it, et cetera. And part of it's like the relationship, right? The, my relationship to you, that's kind of what it is. And I've also made a commitment to myself that, you know, I eventually someday probably have some kind of watch that's nicer than the watches I have now. I'm only going to have ones that I'm willing to wear and do kind of what you, you did with the original Daytona. And I've been able to do that for the most part with this. But if I end up getting something myself, whether it's a Daytona eventually or even something that's certainly much more modest, like it's going to be something that's on my wrist and I'm willing to wear and experience and have meaning in. It's still a watch. Yeah, and it's so curious, like, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like these things aren't cool or like, I, I don't personally know and I'm still trying to study and understand my relationship to these things. Um, like I do have a Porsche and a lot of people think that's hypocritical since I do all this environmental work, but I, and I listen to them, but I mean, I can talk about that for hours, but it's, it's kind of like, I, you know, I love these, I love things that are made well and the intention that goes into them and the design and all that stuff. And I really appreciate it. And the nicer watches have a lot of that. And there is something super cool about having these things, 
and having them on your wrist and waking up in the morning and putting them on and that ceremony. And whether they're sentimental or not, whether you build your own relationship to this object, I mean, it's just cool. It's just like part of the human experience. And um, some people judge it and think it's silly, you know, and there's there's just all these different things going on. I mean, you can put on a nice watch, you can get a nice car, you can feel like an arrogant turd, or you can feel proud, or you can just experience the thing for all the engineering. I mean, all those things are true. And we're just such complex creatures as humans, you know, but it's just nice to like, yeah, one day I feel like James Bond with my blue dial Rolex getting into my car with my fancy boots. And that's fine. I can feel like that. And maybe that makes me more confident that night. And I, you know, have a great night. Other nights I might be like, wow, I want to sneak around and I don't want to be so blingy. And I mean, but there's no right answer here, right? It's just fun to kind of like play with this stuff. And um, that's, I think that's kind of what's cool about your experience with the Daytona. Like you weren't planning on getting one. You might now after if if you do send it back to me, <laughs> you, I, don't you, worry. <laughs> you you might decide like you really miss it, and you're like, wow, I think I want to I want to make that a priority to get one of these things, or um, you might find something else that fills that same spot for you. Uh, but at least now you have that reference, and um, yeah, it's just kind of cool. Yeah. I- so I have I have two other sort of questions. One is sort of random about bun straps and like your straps, which I'll ask next. But this makes me really wonder. Let's say that it wasn't the the Paul Newman Daytona. Like let's say that the situation was slightly different. Let's say you knew Paul Newman and you had a watch that he gave you and and the other piece of the 18 million bucks and the the fact that this watch is a, a Rolex Daytona and worth a bunch of money, which again, I don't want to diminish, but let's, let's say it wasn't that. Let's say the value, the monetal value of the watch wasn't there, right? But it, it had, like it had been given to you by Paul Newman, but nobody would really pay that much for it. But I said, oh, that's a really cool watch. I really think it's awesome. And you said, hey, I'll send it to you. And I wear it for a while and, you know, really have the experience of that object, etc. I'm wondering if it would have been the same experience. And I, I have the sense that actually it would. A little bit of it has to do with the sort of bling and the fact that, you know, that it relates to this big story, which is cool. But also, I'm not sure it had to be that to have a lot of meaning. The sharing of something really cool and mutually interesting is most of what I think I find meaningful here. You know what I mean? That it's 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 just like, James had this thing that really was cool and I'm fascinated with, and it relates to somebody that I am learning about and I really respect, and he's willing to share it with me, so we have this shared experience with it. And so the meaning comes from you reaching out and being like, hey, I, I trust you with something that's valuable to me. And that's something that I think we can do in lots of contexts. That's something I've thought a lot about, um, that I think there's a transportable aspect to this that that constitutes much or most of the meaning. Hmm. Well, I mean... I think what I'm hearing is, you know, it's not so much the specific object, it's how you felt about it and the feeling you got from the fact that I trusted you and wanted to share something with you. And I think, you know, if that's what we're agreeing was profound, then 
that opens it up to everybody, whether you're holding a door for somebody or um, lending your car to somebody or tanking them up. I mean, there's so many little things we can do. Um, there's some quote that I can't remember, but it's like, you know, we'll, we'll forget what you said and what you did, but they'll never forget how you make them feel. And I think that maybe there's something there that, um, uh, you know, yeah, the watch has a big story. It's powerful. It's easy for me to tell somebody I sent a tone to some dude I don't know and then go, whoa, my goodness. But is that a whole lot different than smaller stories that impacted people in similar ways, just acts of kindness? Um, and maybe that's what you're touching on here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it's partly kindness. And, you know, I think that that has, that's one element that I've thought a lot about is like just generosity period, like what has value and how can you share that with other people? Right. Like, cause we have a lot or many of us have all we need and more, you know what I mean? We have food on the table, we have warm places to be, et cetera. And I don't mean to be preachy or whatever, but I think it's useful to remember that. And I try to remember that myself, um, even the context of, of having lots of things. Um, but to me, it's partly ab- about connection actually, right? That, that, that forms connections. And I feel like th- that connection then makes you not, I don't know if it's question how you live, but think about how you want to live and how, how another person, the way they're existing in this world and how they're acting, like, do you want to adopt that? Like, how are you connected to that? How does that feel for you? And, and do you want to sort of buy into some of that? I think that's a lot of, at least what I experience here is like, oh yeah, this is, this is a great connection. To me, that connection actually is the primary thing I'm thankful for and grateful for in this experience and really feel like I've, I've gotten because it's forced me, not forced me. It's allowed me to think about a lot of stuff. Um, and, and that I wouldn't have before if I didn't have the connection. You know, everybody listening has the examples of the, the, the best times and the best experiences. And if we distill those down as to what made them the best, it's probably like you're with people that you love that, you know, you trust and, you're doing something cool and having a new experience with those people or revisiting an old experience in a new way. And, and those simple things just require the elements that we started the conversation with that, you know, Paul um, so well lived just being humble, um, being respectful, listening, trying not to get too stuck in your ways and I've mentioned this before, but like, but you know, Paul just took time for me as this person in his life that he could have so easily blown off. I mean, I stuck around for 10 years, but you know, I didn't marry his daughter. You know, it's one thing like <laughs> if I married her and he's like, okay, you're, you're family now, kid, I can't get rid of you. So, I mean, he just respected me anyway. And, you know, when I would, if I called him and he couldn't get the call, um, he would call back as soon as he could. And the first thing he'd say is like, Hey, sorry, it took me you know, so long to get back to you. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, you're Paul Newman and I'm a, like an 18 year old punk and you're apologizing to me. And that's just his, that's how he rolled. And I just feel like those lessons. Um, I mean, I still don't live that way. I try, but um, you know, that's why he was so successful. It's, it's still a role model. And to the degree that I can remember those things and try and act accordingly, it's really served me. 
And I think for recently, it's helped me to just like, as I've said recently, I get rid of all my stuff and I'm kind of living very simply. And that's just nice to kind of regroup. And, you know, as I bring objects back to my life, make sure they're purposeful and they're somebody put a lot of intention into those objects. Now the things around me, the objects, be they watches or wine openers, all have stories and they become cool things to lend people and share to people. You know, you hand somebody one of these objects and it feels nice to touch because the person who made it put a lot of intention into it. And it's so much more fun to surround yourself with people who have intention. And so anyway, just about intention. And I think again, back to, back to Newman, um, I think he had a lot of intention. I think he set his goals. He stuck to principles, people around him. It was incredibly contagious and that's one of the main reasons he was successful. And that success led the things that he touched to be important. And that's why the watch was important. I have one very small last question. Did you wear it on a bund strap, the leather strap, the whole time? It came to me on a leather band that was not the big, bold one that Paul was seen wearing it. It was a smaller one, and I went through several of them because I was tough, tough on them, and they would rot and fall apart. And I had, you know, twelve dollar fake leather ones at some point because that's all I could afford. And <laughs> that's awesome. Um, you know, I remember going into one Rolex dealer early on to get a real Rolex strap, and they were just out of my price range. I'm like, thanks, I'll just get something else. So the watch, you know, had a lot of cheap stuff on it, and then. Uh, at one point, I had one properly made that was as much of a relic um, to the original. In fact, the the maker found um, he, he'd get vintage leather from the era of the you know the seventies, and he would fashion the watch band from vintage leather. And some of the photos you'll see of the watch online when it went to auction, it's it's actually on that band. And um, I can't remember the name of the, of the gentleman who did it, but we should, I'll figure it out and put it in the show notes because he's quite a craftsman. That's really helpful. And again, that's a little bit of sort of down the watch rabbit hole, but like, I've been wondering about that kind of when I look at this one and sort of think, wow, did he wear it on a button strap the whole time? It couldn't have lasted that long. And okay, that, that really clears it up for me. James, you've been super kind and, and generous with your time. I know um, you're traveling these days, et cetera. And I just wanted to, again, Thank you so much for celebrating the 50th episode of the Dog Watch. You're, again, really a big part of things here. You're always welcome on the Dog Watch. And I wanted to thank you for helping us kind of do this little experiment um, and, and have this fun together and learn something, both for me and people who are listening, to think about some things we might not have before and, and some really profound, I think, important things to think about in, in life. So, James... Thank you so much for joining us today on The Dog Watch. Cool. Well, thank you. Thanks again to James for returning to The Dog Watch and providing so much for us to think about. We are grateful to him for his investment and look forward to keeping track of his future projects and peregrinations. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on the Dog Watch. <laughs>